Uh, we are looking at the text of the resurrection of Christ this morning. The title of the sermon is What You Need to Know About the Resurrection of Christ. I was going to make it a three-part series. I've condensed it into one. Needless to say, the sermon will be long. Uh, hopefully it won't be boring, but that's 50-50. We'll see. <laughs> what You Need to Know About the Resurrection of Christ. We are looking at chapter 27, starting in verse 62, and going to the 17th verse of chapter 28. But we'll back up for a little bit of context, uh, even further into a text that Travis read last week in verse 57 is where we'll start. We'll catch the burial of Jesus there. So we'll start reading in Matthew 27, 57, uh, reading and preaching from the NIV. It says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Go ahead and take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
God, surely your word is holy. Every jot, every tittle, every sentence, every word is holy. It's the very word of God. But a text like today almost feels extra holy as we look at something so glorious as the resurrection. And I confess, Lord, that I feel inadequate as a man, as a preacher, to communicate so glorious a truth. So we ask that your word be made alive to us today, even as it is living, that it would come forth from the pages, that it would rule and reign and reverberate in our hearts and in our minds, that it would capture us, captivate us, the truths herein. We ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, who is actually the teacher of all things. The Holy Spirit, you would teach us about Jesus and the great hope that we have in him. And that because of it, our lives would be transformed. That you would save us today, God, from just hearing a sermon, just coming to church. And that you would truly shape us with the beautiful truth of the glorious resurrection. Please, God, so we say together, all our hope is in you, Jesus, in your word and the work of your spirit. Pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's important that we realize when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it is much more than just a happy ending to an intriguing and tragic story. It is not just another happy ending. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, I will show you today from the scriptures, is core to our faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is core to our Christian faith. Furthermore, it is essential for our salvation. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. It is foundational to our lives, both our temporal lives as we're living now and eternally as we will live in glory with Christ. It is also good news that we will discover today from the text that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is defensible as a historic event. It really happened, and that's believable. And it is indomitable, new word maybe, good word, indomitable in its effects. And the goal of realizing these things from Scripture is that we might more faithfully, as followers of Jesus, live into the truth of the resurrection. That we'd save it from just being a text for today. We would save it from just being an Easter thing. Christianity, within Christianity, the resurrection is the paramount issue. The cross means nothing without the resurrection of Christ. So I want us to lay hold of that theologically today as we look at those things, that we might live a more robust life in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We might be more thrilled, captivated, charmed, and entranced with who Jesus is and what he's done for us as we look at the theological implications of the resurrection. And then we might live rejoicing over such truths. You know, the world is full of sad things. Life is full of hard instances and tough places. But the resurrection gives us reason to rejoice in every season. So we start out by talking about the fact that the resurrection of Christ is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. If you remove the resurrection of Christ, you don't have Christianity. 
It's not a secondary issue that we might agree on and still get along as the church. You don't believe in the resurrection of Christ. You do not have Christianity. That's important for us to realize. There are other issues that are tertiary or secondary or that we debate within the church. This is a non-negotiable. It is a core doctrine of the historic Orthodox Christian faith. Because of what it has to do with. Number one, it has to do with the identity of Christ. It is through the resurrection of Christ that the identity of Christ is made firm for all of history. Romans, that great theological treatise in the New Testament, starts by saying this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news or the gospel is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. And he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that sets him apart from every other descendant of King David from every other would-be savior or supposed Messiah that Israel encountered. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can say without equivocation, without doubt, that Jesus is the only unique Son of God who is the Savior of the world. Secondly, the resurrection of Christ is core because of what it says about the good news of Christ. Look how the book of Corinthians starts, or not starts, but the 15th chapter starts. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So here's the gospel. For what I have received, I pass on to his first report of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So apart from the resurrection, Jesus isn't Jesus, as far as the unique sign of God we saw in Romans 1.4. And apart from the resurrection, the good news isn't good news. The gospel isn't the gospel. It's not good news if Jesus merely died on a cross. Nothing then was accomplished. We know that something was accomplished in the economy of God on our behalf for our good through his sacrifice because of his resurrection from the dead. So this good news by which we are saved requires as part of it Christ's resurrection from the dead. It is core because of what it says about the validity of of the work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. See how that dovetails with the last point, right? The finishing part of the gospel is that Christ was resurrected from the dead. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost if he wasn't risen from the dead. And if our hope in Christ is, in, is only in this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. So the resurrection of Christ is core to the historic Christian faith because of what it says about the identity of Christ, what it says about the good news or the way it forms the good news, and how it gives validity to the work of Christ on the cross. And it has to do with the appropriation of the work of Christ into our lives. In other words, how we are saved. 
We actually cannot be saved without laying hold of the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Romans 10.9 says this, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at that. So the resurrection of Christ is non-negotiable within Christianity. And we're talking about the literal bodily resurrection of Christ, which is the only resurrection of Christ that the scriptures teach about. It's not a figurative resurrection. It wasn't a metaphor for anything. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't some partial resurrection. It was a literal, physical, in glory resurrection of Christ. There is no Christianity without it. Without the resurrection, then this whole thing, all these 27 chapters of Matthew that we've studied thus far, would have meant nothing. Christianity would have been over and dead right then. Think about what our salvation is. Our salvation through Christ's work on the cross is justification. Justification is a means by which God declares us both not guilty, though we were guilty, and innocent and righteous, though we know we're not, according to the work of Christ. We're declared not guilty before God because of his sacrifice on the cross, and we're declared righteous before God because Christ's righteous life is credited to our account. Justification. Justification requires the resurrection. Romans chapter 4 says, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, right? He paid the price for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's a whole package, the cross and the resurrection. So therefore we find the second point is that the resurrection of Christ is essential for our salvation. Let's see how it's stated in Ephesians. You guys with me? You all look kind of bored. Are you bored? Too much theology? You look bored. Okay. Ephesians, maybe I'm just insecure. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, right? Speaking about spiritually, presently, and ultimately because of, our, because of God's judgment. Verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. There we go. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Now look what the reckless love of God does. Christ is crucified. He's the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and the righteous standard of God and the demands of the law. Christ is crucified and he's risen from the dead. And when we put our faith in Christ, God has resurrected us along with Christ to be united with Christ Jesus is an issue of faith, to put our faith in Jesus Christ and to identify with him. So from the perspective of God, those who have put their faith in Christ are in Christ, and so we are also resurrected with him. We live life in the righteousness of his life credited to our account, and we are seated in the heavenlies with him. This is resurrection stuff. So that Pete, good old Pete, would go on to say in his first letter, 
All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. So we see how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is. We often give it credence. We give, it to atten- we give attention to it at Easter. But the New Testament gives robust treatment to the theological truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead because Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then we might say a third point, and these are all obviously related. The resurrection of Christ is foundational for our lives, meaning because of it, we are also raised, as I said previously, and we are raised in two ways. Now by faith in this life that we live here temporally with Christ, and ultimately when Christ returns in body. Let's look at examples of both. Romans chapter 6 talks about our new life that we have because Christ is resurrected. It says, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Pause right there. That's that identification through faith thing, right? We are identified with the Christ of work, uh, the work of Christ, excuse me, his work is attributed to our account through our faith in him, baptism being a sign of that. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, pause right there. Notice how Romans chapter one says he was raised by the power of the Spirit. And now we read by the power of the Father. The whole enchilada, the whole Trinity is involved in this glorious thing. There's a lot of power involved in this thing. Let me read it again. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. You know, the hope of Christianity is that we have new lives because of what Christ has done for us. It's not just that we were forgiven. It is that we have new lives, that we have a righteous standing before God and we have a new way to live and we have a new power in our lives, Christ in us and the Holy Spirit in us and the power of sin has been broken in our lives. So we were once slaves to sin, but we have been delivered in that and we have new lives. The great picture of that was Israel in the Old Testament enslaved to Egypt and then God delivered them through the land that was slain on their behalf and now they had new lives as free people with God. We have new lives because of the resurrection from the dead. And and that resurrection power we'll see later toward the end of the sermon is functioning in these new lives. So we live resurrected lives now, and then we will live a literal, physical resurrected life in glory when Christ comes again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a few different verses. Redundant again from verse 19. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, speaking of Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, speaking of Jesus. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order in this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Skip a bit in the chapter and it says, For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. 
Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. The law gives sin its power, but thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, that is glorious news. Now, Jesus was not just resuscitated as others in the scriptures were resuscitated. You know, Lazarus, we say Lazarus was resurrected, but really he was resuscitated. He would die again. The little girl whom Jesus raised from the dead, really that was a resuscitation. She would die again. But Jesus was resurrected in glory never to die again. And it says that we who have put our faith in Jesus will one day also be resurrected in glory. And this dying body, can I get a witness about dying bodies? Gosh, I'm 45, it's already happening, it's ridiculous. We'll be transformed into bodies that will never die. I know I offended some of you that are way over 45. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even death will have a funeral one day but we will live forever in glory with him, transformed into bodies that are fit for eternity. Now, because we've made such a point, the New Testament claims that that Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection, it's important for us to think, well, is the resurrection believable? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ defensible? Because, you know, it happened 2,000 years ago, and it's easy to, like... I was having a conversation with Fifi, my three-year-old, the other day. And I can't remember what we were talking about. Uh, But she said to me, well, Daddy, Jesus isn't real. Now, here I am, a daddy and a pastor. (laughs) Deeply concerned. (laughs) I was driving. She was in the back seat. I was like, oh, my gosh. slowed down the car a little bit. And I said, sweetheart, well, why do you say that? And she said, well, I can't see him. We're not very different than three-year-olds, really. You know what I mean? Seeing is believing is the old statement. And so we often think in these terms. I'm I'm speaking broadly now for culture. We, we, We don't see him. How can we believe in him? And how can we believe in this resurrection thing that supposedly happened 2,000 years ago? It's important for us to drill down on that at least a little bit and address some of that because, again, I said that according to the Scriptures, you can't be a Christian unless you believe in the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot to do there. So the resurrection of Christ actually is, we'll see just in the text in front of us today, it is defensible as a historic event. Now, I want us to notice in our text, and don't worry, that all that other stuff was not just a long intro. We're in the meat of the sermon now. I know it sounds like I'm just getting to the text, but I want you to notice that there was an attempt made by Rome to safeguard the body. Let's read those verses again, starting in verse 62 of chapter 27. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, they said, speaking of Jesus, said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. 
Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal and a stone and, on the stone and posting a guard. So they're worried that the disciples might come and steal the body of Jesus. They somehow remembered what the disciples clearly forget after the cross of Christ, that Jesus promised he would be resurrected. And so they go to Pilate and say, look, we got to do something about this, right? They, they weren't thinking for a second Jesus might actually be resurrected. That wasn't even a thought in their mind. They just thought the disciples might come and steal him and try to make it look this way. So they go to Pilate and Pilate says, okay, you have a guard, It's in the singular there, but a Roman guard was four to 16 men. It's used in the plural later on. It says the guards were his dead men. So it was four to 16 men. He said, here's a Roman guard, four to 16 guys. Doesn't tell us how many. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. Do the very best you can. Pilate also shares that concern. Do the very best you can to make sure that there's no hoax possible here, that there's no deception, that there's no plot to make it look as though Jesus rose from the dead. Now, this is not just anybody talking. This is Pilate, and this is Rome. And if anybody knew how to do security, it was Rome. Take a guard, make it as secure as you know how. So as I said, the chief priests here were given a Roman guard, four to 16 soldiers. The world has never known a killing machine like a Roman soldier, right? This is like what they did, like guarded junk. This is what we do. And they were trained to defend a six feet circle around them with their lives. Nobody was to penetrate that thing. This is what these guys did. And the world has never known a force like Roman guards and Roman soldiers, And what made their job so desperate was that Roman soldiers, if they failed in guarding something, they were punished with death. That's why we have this dire situation later in the chapter where the chief priests say, listen, if the governor finds out that the body of Jesus is missing, we'll deal with him. We'll make it okay for you. You take this money and run, right? So if they failed at their task of guarding something, then they were generally put to death. So There's Roman soldiers now around the grave. There's a big stone, obviously. And uh, I've read books where they estimate with a grave this size that the stone would have weighed 1.5 to 2 tons. So it's a big rock. The women came and said, who's going to move the stone away for us? It wasn't small. And then they placed a seal on that stone. Now, we're not very familiar with seals, but have you ever like seen a fancy piece of mail or a fancy invoca- uh, invitation or something where there's a little dip of wax on the back and then something pressed into it, right? And then it's sealed that way. Well, kings during that time and Roman rulers used to have their seal that represented who they were. And if you broke that seal and were unauthorized to do so, you also were punished by death. In fact, the punishment for breaking a Roman seal as an unauthorized person during this time was crucifixion of upside down, your guts ran into your esophagus and you gargled to death on them. So they made it pretty secure. The guards, the seal. So if the disciples were to steal the body, they were going to somehow have to muster the, what's the word I'm looking for? The boldness to go and beat up all the Roman soldiers And then the boldness to break the seal, roll away the stone, and steal the body, right? This big plot that is supposed here. Remember, they all abandoned Jesus. Only the women stuck around at the cross, 
right? Can I get a woo-woo for the women? All the dudes are like, I'm out of here. Peter's like, I don't even know the guy. I don't even know the guy. Never seen the guy. I'm out of here. Right? They bailed. So are we supposed to think now, according to this story that was circulated, that they came, somehow defeated the Romans? Peter already tried his little sword thing. He barely lopped off a dude's ear in the garden. So there was a, a, a very intentional safeguarding of the tomb by the powers of Rome. I want us to notice then that after that, there was this empty tomb and a missing body. Chapter 28, verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. So there was, in fact, an empty tomb. And so a plot had to be devised to explain the empty tomb. Notice that nobody in the story, nobody in history says, well, the tomb wasn't actually empty. I went in and saw the body. Nobody says that. The the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders are confessing, yeah, the the body's actually gone, right? So then they come up with this explanation. Verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went in the city, reported the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, here's what you got to say. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Which, you know, if you're a Roman soldier and you got to say that, like you're in such a deep load. If this report gets out to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. That's important for us to understand because as we get to the book of Acts, which we will study after the book of Matthew in the new year, we'll see that there are two competing narratives going on. Somebody stole the body. No, Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. And so they started the story that the body had been stolen. And in doing so, they, the opponents, are actually confessing that the tomb was empty. Now, here's what logic tells us. If the protagonists and the antagonists, if the Christians and the Romans and the Jewish authorities are both saying that the tomb was empty and there was no body, then we have no choice but to accept that statement as historical fact. There's no third party saying, okay, there there was a body, right? Those who are are, are pro and those who are against are both saying that the the, the tomb was empty. There was no body. So we have no choice logically but to accept that as historical fact. Now, here's a fancy quote from some fancy lawyer dude. Tom Anderson, former president of the California Trial Lawyers Association and co-author of Basic Advocacy Manual for the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, says... Let's assume that Christ did not rise from the dead. Let's assume that the written accounts of his appearances to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? Listen, I saw the tomb. It was not empty. Look, I was there. Christ did not rise from the dead. As a matter of fact, I saw his body. But the silence of history is deafening when it comes to testimony against the resurrection. That is to say, go ahead and do your own search, scrub through historical documents and records, do what you want. Nobody ever claimed to see a dead body of Christ after Sunday. 
And it would have just been perfect for the Romans and the Jewish authorities if they could have just produced the dead body. Do you think they didn't search? Do you think they wouldn't have been questioning the disciples? Do you think that would not have been their primary goal? If they could have just produced the dead body of Christ, then we probably never would have heard of Christianity except for some, in some obscure class at some creepy college. We wouldn't even heard about it. It would have been a non-issue if someone merely produced a dead body. But a dead body of Jesus after Sunday was never produced. On the contrary, there were many eyewitnesses to a risen Christ. First, it starts with the women, right? Verses 8 through 10. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. See me. Now, the, the women, because they stuck with Jesus through the cross, had actually seen the dead body on Friday of Christ in the tomb. We're told in Luke chapter 23 that they followed Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb. They were there when he laid him in the tomb and they saw the dead body of Jesus Christ. So they saw him dead on Friday. So that when they come back on Sunday, again, they forgot what Jesus had been saying. They did not assume that Jesus was risen. They assumed that the body was missing. That's why the angel had to explain to them what was going on. In fact, they say explicitly in John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 and in verse 14, the first time they report this, they say, listen, uh, Jesus is gone and we don't know where they've taken him. They thought that the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities had done something with the body of Jesus. They're not assuming a resurrection. In other words, this is not wishful thinking. They come assuming that they're going to find on Sunday the dead body of Jesus Christ and they came with myrrh and all that stuff. The angel had to explain to them what happened and then they saw Jesus. Now, if you were trying to make up an account about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and let's say that you were saying false things and the the last thing that you would say is, yeah, so some people saw him and the first people saw him were these women and one of them, Mary Magdalene, used to be possessed by seven demons and she was a prostitute. Those were the first ones that saw him so we could really trust that testimony. That's not what you would do in that culture. No offense, don't kill the messenger. But in that day, the testimony of women was not even admissible in legal courts. That's not me. That's not now. Don't kill me. But the point is that if you were making this stuff up, you would never say, yeah, the women saw him first. Especially that one demonized chick who was a prostitute. That's who saw him. Now we know Jesus rose from the dead. You never say that. The only one silly enough to do that would be God himself who tells the truth in the scriptures. So then the disciples see him, right? He tells the women, go tell the disciples. So in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Again, if you are making up this account, you would never add in, but some doubted. Yeah, the women saw him, some doubted. That's not what you say if you're making this up. If it's God's word and it's telling the truth, that's included there. But the point right now is that the disciples were now eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we are told in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to over 500 people. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. 
Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. So here is a testament to the eyewitness is of Christ after his resurrection. Some people say, well, this was wishful thinking. The disciples really wanted Jesus to be risen from the dead. So this was a mass hallucination. Experts will tell you that 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time, not even a Grateful Dead show. I've been there. (laughs) It's not the way that it works. It wasn't a resuscitation, right? It's not that Jesus somehow crawled out of the tomb. Like here's what some people literally say. It's called the swoon theory. That Jesus, you know, almost died on the cross, but then he got in the tomb and it was cool in there. And so it kind of revived him. And so he like unwrapped himself from the grave clothes and then he rolled away the stone and then he came out and he beat up the Roman soldiers and then he appeared to the women and they worshiped him. That's, he was, his physical, that's just stupid. He was resurrected in glory. And yet the physical body was still somehow honored. He had his wounds. Some doubted. Who doubted? Thomas. Thomas would say later, I I won't believe unless I could put my fingers in his wounds. Jesus would say, here you go. He was resurrected in glory. There was eyewitness accounts. I read one book that put the resurrection of Jesus Christ on on trial. And it said, if we just called these 500 witnesses and gave each one six minutes to testify about them seeing Jesus, we would have 50 hours of eyewitness accounts. So imagine you're in a court of law and you're calling these witnesses. Number 479 comes up. They get their six minutes. 50 hours of people saying, yeah, I saw him. This is where, this is what it looked like. This is what was going on. 50 hours of that. And then you would say, okay, now let's call forward the witness who saw the dead body of Jesus after Sunday. Nobody. It'd be like the most ridiculous lopsided trial in the history of the world. 50 hours of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus resurrected in glory. Not one single witness, all of history tells us, who could ever come forward and claim to have seen a dead Jesus after Sunday. Furthermore, just 40 days later, the apostles began to preach in Jerusalem within the proximity of where Christ was crucified and buried. It's like a small town, right? It's like Carpinteria. It's like if Jesus was crucified and buried over by the marsh and we're preaching over by Albertsons that he was risen from the dead, right? In the very proximity, they're preaching. And what was the central component of their message? This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And there's nobody to refute that. Nobody could say, no, here's the body. There's nobody saying, no. I mean, there was an empty tomb. They could all walk over and see the empty tomb. Where's the body? There's nobody. They were preaching. Did you see him? Yeah, I saw him resurrected. They were preaching a risen Christ in the same community. And the first time they preached it, 3,000 people got saved. And by the second time they preached it, the church included 10,000 men plus women and children. That just doesn't happen in the same small town if you're preaching a risen Messiah unless he's actually risen. That would be ridiculous. Furthermore, they were all Jews at that time, every single one of them, right? After the resurrection of Jesus Christ and once those sermons were preached, they stopped going to synagogue and temple on Saturday, the Sabbath, and they started worshiping Jesus on Sunday, the day of the resurrection. And they stopped practicing the sacrifices. For them to do that, to make that huge paradigm shift in who they were and everything they believed from the Sabbath to Sunday worship, from sacrifices to it is paid in full, done, finished, to telestai, to no longer practice that ceremonial law, something real had to have happened. I mean, that 
that changed history. And furthermore then, we have the continuing witness of the disciples and others who have believed in Jesus throughout time. And every one of the disciples was killed for their belief in Jesus and for preaching a resurrected Christ. The only one who didn't die that way was John. They tried to boil him in oil. He could not be boiled. He's super bad. (laughs) James was ran through with a sword. Peter was crucified upside down. All of them in different places of the world were killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. Are we to believe that the same Peter who said to a servant girl, I don't know Jesus, don't look at me. I was never with him. I swear I was never with him. May God kill me and damn me if I'm lying. I was never with him. Are we to believe that he now somehow mustered preaching a risen Christ and even dying for a lie? The only logical solution is that Christ actually rose from the dead. There's no other explanation for the empty tomb, the eyewitness accounts, all the changed lives, and the apostolic message, and the birth of the church. So I say all that to you to tell you that you can be confident in the assertions about Scripture or in Scripture, or from Scripture. It is the inerrant, holy, very Word of God. And when it says something, you can believe it. And if you don't believe it, dive into it and investigate it. Let me tell you something. The Bible is not afraid of you. The Bible has dealt with much smarter people than you for thousands of years. It's not afraid of you. If there's an area that you have an issue with, dive in and do some homework, do some investigation. And if you need help about the resurrection, sorry about my microphone, then do some investigation about that. There are several books, you can Google them. So my final point then is, in light of that great news, that the resurrection of Christ is defensible as a historic event. The last thing I'll say is this, the resurrection of Christ is indomitable in its effects. What does indomitable mean? It means impossible to subdue or defeat. That is, the resurrection of Christ changes everything forever, and it can't be undone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the grave. You know, the grave is what the whole world fears most. But Peter would go on to preach in Acts chapter 2. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is indomitable in its effects. It's all powerful. It can't be stopped. It is bigger than the grave. This is very good news. My next point, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than our guilt. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and its implied truth is greater than even our guilt. The guilt that other people will put on us, the guilt that the enemy tries to get us to carry, and the way that we carry our own guilt. Jesus' resurrection is bigger. So if you're carrying guilt today, let it go in the name of Jesus. He has risen to new life that we might be free from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the grave, more powerful than our guilt. It's more powerful than sin. Hear this, Romans chapter 6. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. 
We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. You know, we struggle with sin. We struggle with the power of sin. And we come up with all sorts of different ways to rename our sin to reclassify our behaviors. Be it I'm functioning out of my woundedness or I'm a victim, this was done to me or I simply can't help myself or we call them addictions or we call them diseases. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the power of sin. And so every chain can be broken. So ask the Holy Spirit today to help appropriate the power of the resurrection to our lives in those areas where we feel bound by sin, trapped by guilt, living in shame. The resurrection is bigger than those things. The resurrection means that those things have the power taken from them. The resurrection is more powerful than the loss of loved ones. 1 Thessalonians says, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. There is hope. That is hope. Bigger than the grave. Bigger than death. Resurrected, eternal life in Christ. Bigger than the loss that we've experienced is the hope that we have in Christ. And there's a day coming, and it's not that far. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we will all be together with each other and with him. And finally, hear this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more powerful than our fears. Jesus said in his resurrected glory in Revelation chapter one, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus and his glory is bigger than our fears. My three-year-old daughter, Fifi, who I'm told you you was dancing with apostasy the other day. (laughs) Has turned a theological corner. I know this because yesterday I was teaching her to surf. And we were down at Rincon. I was taking her out and I was pushing her into waves. She can't swim. So, you know, at first she was like a little bit scared out in the water. And I just went out on like a theological limb, you know, and she's like, Daddy, I'm scared. I said, sweetheart, you don't need to be scared because Jesus is with you and Jesus will protect you. And she looked at me and she said, okay, I'm not scared. She turned a little theological corner there. And in that moment, by grace, Jesus was bigger than her fear. What's your great fear today? Take it to the face of Jesus. Bring it into the glorious light of the resurrected Lord of life. Hold it out in front of him. Say, this is my fear. And let the resurrected Jesus be bigger than that. Let him confront your fears. For Jesus has said to us, do not fear, I am the first and the last. 
I am the risen one. And realize that that same great power that we spoke of, the power of the Father that resurrected Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit that resurrected Jesus, that same great power is a power power that's available to us in our Christian lives. Last verse, I promise, Ephesians says, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Did you hear that? No, you didn't hear that. The same power that resurrected Christ, the same power that was bigger than the grave, bigger than the devil, bigger than the power of sin, bigger than all those things, is the power of God that is available to us who believe. So bring it all to Jesus. Every chain, every heavy weight, every fear, every deep loss, bring it to Jesus today. Maybe today you need to bring your sin to Jesus for the first time. You realize that you are a sinner who is guilty before God for the way that you've lived and you need forgiveness. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He loves you. That's why he was crucified on the cross and that's why he rose from the dead and he lives now to forgive you and to give you new life repent of your sins put your faith in jesus we read how you do that if you confess confess if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved maybe today the biggest thing that you could bring before the resurrected glory of christ is your broken heart Where else do we have to go in those times that are that deep and that dark? May the Holy Spirit help us today to look into the eyes of the Lord of life who lives and who is coming again and who will renew all things and give us hope today in hard places. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for the glorious truth in your word. Thank you for the grace that's been brought to us in the person of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and is coming again. Thank you, God, that you know us intimately, each one of us. We ask that you would meet us in our own spaces and places. You draw us into the power, the resurrection power of God in areas where we're feeling bondage or let down or bitter or unable to forgive and that we also would be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, and we would worship him in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you live, that we might have new life. Work by your spirit the newness of life in our lives today. 